minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Well, here we are. Look, I'm sorry for the dead air, but I've just been attacked here by at here at Community Radio 3CR. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcasting live on the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Look, I've just got the results of the postal survey in case you're interested. Just in case you're interested. 79.5% of the electorate voted on the marriage equality postal survey. That's 12,727,920 people. So that's a reasonable sample for a survey. You'd reckon that, wouldn't you? That's a reasonable sample. 12,727,920. Okay. Now, of that 79.5% response, the yes vote... No, no, let's give you the no vote first. Let's let let's let you worry. Oh, go away, Andy. He's trying to read the piece of paper behind my back. What a brute man. That's the producer. What do you expect? The no vote was 4,873,987. That's 30.4% of Australians who voted in the postal survey, 30.4% voted no. That's 4,873,987. And in the voluntary postal survey, the yes vote was 7,817,247. That is 61.6%. Now, look, I'm no great mathematician, but I think 61.6 is greater than 30.4. So I assume the results of the postal survey, which 12,727,920 people completed, was an overwhelming yes. All right? So... $120 million later, it's back in federal parliament's little enclave, isn't it? The people have spoken. So it's in its little enclave. So what will will federal parliament do? And it's quite interesting because I've always been interested in uh, these type of things because the only reason they had a voluntary postal survey is the pressure was so huge on uh, the Federal Liberal Party 
to make a decision that, you know, they're forced to make a decision. So, yes, 7,817,247, that's 61.6%. No, 4,873,987, that's 30.4%. Now, obviously, 20.5% of people who are eligible to vote decided they didn't want to vote for a variety of reasons, all right? They had a choice. They decided they weren't interested. Fair enough. Okay, they didn't get their postal ballot. They weren't interested. They said, well, leave it to somebody else. I'm not going to... And that, that, that's what happens, you know, in a, in a survey. You get people who say yes, you get people who say no, and people who shrug their shoulders. That's the way it goes. So there it is. So, as I said before, the ball is now in the federal politicians' thing, and they're supposed to have a free vote about this question about marriage equality. So it'll be interesting to see how they approach it. But already, I'm sure the no campaign knew that they'd actually lost the vote. And already we are seeing some extraordinary scenes in the Senate and the House of Representatives because, you see, there are people in Parliament who really don't believe that the public should get involved in this type of stuff, you know, because they're supposed... They know what's best for all of us. They're born to rule. They're born to make decisions, and irrespective of what the Australian public think, they don't give a continental. You know that, and I know that. They just don't care. And it's fascinating to see these alternative bills which are originating in the Senate, you know, uh, in an attempt to derail the marriage equality legislation. Things like, you know, about they talk to you about religious freedom. Now, there is religious freedom to discriminate legally in this country. If you're gay or a lesbian or whatever, you know, religious-based schools can choose legally not to interview for your job, let alone appoint you on a job or get rid of you from a job. They already discriminate, you know, legally. There's discrimination. You know, and I really find it offensive that people that have got a religious belief can discriminate and people who've got no religious belief under you know we can't discriminate i mean who do they think they are they've got this carte blanche you know to discriminate it's just quite extraordinary so but this legislation which has been put through by you won't believe it that great freedom loving think tank the institute of private affairs i don't use the p word when i speak about them some of their leading lights who are now in Parliament, like the head of the Senate and the bloke who's putting up the current uh, bill in the Senate, well, you wouldn't believe it. You would not believe it. They now want to pass legislation through federal Parliament which allows bakers and florists to legally discriminate against gay people who want to get married and want to have a wedding cake or flowers at their wedding. Extraordinary, isn't it? And these are people who talk about, you know, freedom of choice, blah, 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 blah. Just extraordinary stuff. And this is what we're paying these idiots for, to put up legislation which allows people to legally discriminate because they've got a conscientious objection. Well, I've got a conscientious objection to parliamentary democracy, all right? All right? Is there any legislation being passed to, you know, protect my conscientious objection? Of course there's no legislation being passed to protect my conscientious objection. But, you know, they want to do it for bakers and florists and caterers, 
you know, who may find it offensive to say no to somebody who's having a gay wedding. Extraordinary. Well, I can tell you now, and I know a lot of people in the catering and floristry and bakery business, they're all jumping up and down because of all the pent-up demands for weddings, car hire firms, suit hire firms, you know, you name it. Small businesses out there jumping up and down, thinking of all the little pink dollars that are going to come their way as tens of thousands of people in this country get legally married. But again... It all depends on our federal politicians and whether a 61.6% yes vote is enough for them to desist. Well, I don't think it's enough for them to desist. You know what they're like. They'll just carry on and carry on and carry on. They talk about freedom, but it's only the freedom for them to discriminate that there is at issue. No freedom of choice. You know, No freedom of choice is there as far as they're concerned. So I'll go through the results of the voluntary postal survey again. Okay, let's go again. Very simple. The it's very simple. The seventy nine point five percent of the electorate voted. Now that is that's an extraordinary. That's an extraordinary percentage. It's lucky that with compulsory voting you get 85% of Australians, maybe 90%, who actually vote at federal elections. And in many council elections, although there's compulsory voting and they're postal electorates in the majority of cases, you know, postal votes, it's lucky to get 50% voting. And in state elections, anywhere between 85 to you know, 92%. But So this is a voluntary postal vote. You didn't have to fill it in. You could just put it in the bin. You could say, stuff this, I don't care, I'm not interested, it's taking up too much time, it's a load of crap. So, 12,727,920 voted. Well, they I won't use the word vote, they took part in the voluntary postal survey, Okay. Of the 12,727,920, 7,817,247 voted yes. That's 61.6% of the people who voted voted yes. And 4,873,987 voted no. That's 30.4% of the people who voted. So I think as far as the Australian population is concerned, we think it's about time that we kind of followed the Irish and the British and the Italian and the French and the Americans, and the list goes on and on and on, and allowed um, marriage equality to exist in this country. And as far as the catering industry, you know, the cake makers, the florists, the chauffeured car people, they would be popping the champagne because I reckon is going to add at least 1% to 2% to the GDP over the next 12 months as all this, all, the, all these people tie the knot legally. But again, don't forget, it's just a voluntary postal survey. It's not a plebiscite. And most importantly at all, it's not a referendum. Because if we've had a referendum and 7,817,247 voted yes... Then, and there was a majority in four of the states, then marriage equality would have been enshrined in the Australian Constitution 
And that would mean, that's right, that would mean no government could remove that right unless, unless they held another referendum. Extraordinary. All right, enough of that. So hopefully you'll get a lot of invitations to a lot of weddings and it means that you're going to have to buy prezzies. Oh, I forgot, the department stores will be celebrating, all those small gift shops will be get, celebrating, you know, as you try to work out what's a useless gift for the... I've got to go to a wedding on the 19th of November, yeah. Uh, haven't got a gift yet, but that's the way it goes. I love those weddings when they tell you that you don't need to bring a gift and then if you don't bring a gift, they kind of look at you. But that's another story. All right, let's move on. Now, there's a marriage equality party at Victorian Trades Hall at 5.30pm. And Trades Hall's at the corner of Victoria Street in Carlton. So, come along, the Trades Hall party, and I am sure it'll be on for young and old tonight at the Marriage Equality Street Party at the Victorian Trades Hall starting at 5.30pm. And I hope people don't spill out into the streets and cause traffic jams. Naughty, 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 naughty. Okay, let's get back to more some more mundane garbage. Well, the Northcote by-election. Now, I know if you're listening to this program, the rest of Australia don't really care about the Northcote by-election, but I do care about the Northcote by-election, not because I'm standing in the Northcote by-election. I'm actually not standing in Northcote now. I'm standing in Fitzroy in Melbourne. And, the, and, and Northcote takes up the suburbs of Northcote and Formbury and Alfington and Fairfield and South Preston. Now, this is important. The, the popular previous member died quite young, Fiona Richardson, uh, of um, breast cancer, complications, uh, disseminated disease, and uh, a by-election has been forced in the electorate. And I've basically stood on an affordable housing ticket. So what's the strategy? Because people tell me, Jay, you're pissing in the wind. You're pissing in the wind. Well, (laughs) the great thing about pissing in the wind is it's your own piss that kind of sakes your legs and runs down your socks into your boots. The trouble is... If you don't do anything, other people are going to piss on you. And if it comes to other people pissing on me or me pissing in the wind, I always prefer to be pissing in the wind. I just don't have that, you know, that little fetish. So I haven't got haven't got the gropus fetish, but that's another story. So what's the strategy? It's very simple. I'm standing as a candidate. There are twelve candidates. You know and I know I've got a snowflakes chance in hell of being elected as the next member for Northcote in the uh, Victorian Legislative Assembly. Now, the contest is between two major parties, and it's not the Liberal National Party because they didn't stand a candidate because they usually get a vote of around 15% in, in that electorate, being one of the more uh, interesting electorates in Australia. And the, and the big, um, the big uh, struggle is between the... The Australian Greens and the Australian Labor Party. The seat is currently held by the Australian Labor Party. And the reason I stood in this election is that I've been involved in the Defend and Extend Public Housing campaign now for over 12 months and in public interest before corporate interest for a number of years. And the current Labor government's 
public housing policies, that's publicly owned and public managed housing, are abysmal. It's about shrinking the sector by entering into private public partnerships, um, supporting community housing. <coughs> no, this goes on and on. You know, we've talked about it before. Now, I'm a great believer in a mixed economy. So what's a mixed economy? Does it mean you have half a chocolate cake and half a plain cake? No. A mixed economy is a very simple thing. A mixed economy is when you have government-owned industries competing with privately-owned industries. <coughs> yes, that's a cough. No, it wasn't because I was shouting because of the marriage equality voluntary postal survey. No, another reason. So a mixed economy is when you've got government-owned industry and privately-owned industry competing in the same marketplace and creates real competition. It's like when the Commonwealth Bank and Telstra was owned by the government of the day, not by the Australian people through the Constitution, by the government of the day. When you had a strong Commonwealth Bank and Telstra and uh, many of the essential services providers were uh, owned by government, you found it was a lot easier to influence uh, policy and there was much more competition in the sector. As soon as the Telstra and the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, what we saw is a massive increase in profits which are made by these corporations. And if you think I'm fibbing, you know, you think I'm talking about fake news, the unfortunate thing is they only talk about real news on this program. And the fact is that f about 30 years ago, for every dollar, every dollar which was made by a private company, $2 went to the workforce and $1 went to their shareholders and the owners of the company, okay? Today, for every dollar, that's right, for every dollar that is made, that's right, every dollar that is made by a private company, 66.6 .6 cents, that's two-thirds of every dollar, and goes to the company, to the owners and shareholders, and 33.3% goes to workers. So we've seen a slowdown in wages growth. We've seen a casualisation of the workforce. We've seen a bodgy uh, contracting kind of become the, the norm these days, and the list goes on and on. So, so we've seen the changes which have occurred. Now, with these changes, with the deregulation of the housing sector, what we've seen is investors investing heavily in the housing sector. Housing is no longer a basic right, you know, in terms of shelter. It's it's basically an investment. That's all it is. It's an investment. And every auction of the thousands of auctions will be held in Australia this weekend. Fifty percent will be snapped up by investors because the great thing about living in the land of Oz. That's the land of milk and honey, Australia. The great thing is that if you have a second home or a third home, you can gain a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Great. But if you've got no home, well, you've got a problem. So we now have legislation in place which rewards people who use housing as an investment strategy. And what this has done is it's driven up housing prices and made housing quite difficult for people on low wages and people even on medium wages. You know, when you've got to pay a million dollars, you've got to find 700, 800 grand to get a, you know, a reasonable size house for a family somewhere in a 
suburb in Melbourne or Sydney, you've got a, you've got a dilemma. I mean, because it, you know, five percent, maybe, maybe you, you borrow a million at five percent. That's what's that? That's ten uh, percent. That's fifty grand plus a bit extra. So you, you know, about a grand a week mortgage repayments, maybe twelve hundred a week. And what happens is, as the housing prices increase, uh, people put up rents because they need to be able to cover their mortgage and use the rent to pay their mortgage. So what we're seeing is fewer people going to the housing market because they can't afford it. More people being forced to rent and more people finding themselves homeless or in difficult circumstances, couch surfing most of their life or house sitting. So the whole point about the Northcote by-election is to raise the issue of housing affordability and how we can solve this problem because we can solve the problem tomorrow. You don't need blood in the streets, the guillotine back in, in fashion, people being beheaded in, um, in public squares. All you need is a little bit of legislation going through the Houses of Parliament at a state level and a territory level. The simple, very simple concept which I'm putting forward is very simple. Every state and every territory makes money from stamp duty. Stamp duty is the tax you pay when you buy a home. Whether it's for your own personal use or an investment, it is a tax which is paid to the government. Now, I'm not familiar with other states, but I'm very familiar with the figures in Victoria. And I know that in the last financial years, the Victorian state government made $6 billion from stamp duty. Okay? $6 billion. And most of that money has gone into consolidated revenue to dig tunnels and widen roads, you know, not to help people get shelter. A little bit has, but not most of it. Now, if that... $6 billion was quarantined for public housing. You could spot purchase. You don't have to build. You could spot purchase between twenty and 25,000 units houses in Victoria every year. And you could house 75,000 to 100,000. So in a, in a decade, you could have 20% of the housing stock in Victoria owned by the government, managed by the government, giving people secure, secure housing and you could cap rents at 25% of income. End of story. 25% of income. What this does, it releases all this money which is going to the banking sector to pay mortgages into the general economy. That means you could have a bigger gay wedding, a bigger cake, more outlandish clothes, you know, stretch limousine, and the list goes on and on. And all this helps the economy tick over. So it's a win-win situation for everybody. Win-win situation. So I'm standing on... So what's the strategy behind this? Anybody can stand on anything, but what's the strategy? It's very simple. It's a very simple, effective strategy. I'm aiming on the Saturday of the 18th of November, to pick up anywhere between 2 to 5% of the primary vote. That will make me the kingmaker in terms of who gets elected, whether it's, whether it's the Australian Greens or the Australian Labor Party. And as I've recommended 
to to uh, the electors of Northcote to give Lydia Thorpe the second preference, it means that many of my votes, not all, but many of my votes will flow to the Greens and possibly help them over the line and win the inner city seat of Northcote. Now, the Victorian state government's majority will then be reduced to one in the Legislative Assembly. It doesn't have a majority in the Legislative Council. It needs to negotiate to get its legislation through. If its majority is reduced to one, what that means is between now and the next state election in November 2018, there'll be a great deal of pressure on the Victorian Labor Party to change their public housing policies and stop these private par- private public partnerships and stop transferring the management and eventually the ownership of public houses to the social and community housing sector, which are owned by private organisations, some for profit and some not for profit, and actually put money into the public housing sector to resolve the housing crisis and provide security. So a significant vote, first preference vote, for my campaign sends a message to the Victorian Labor Party that if you do not change your public housing policies before the next state election, they risk losing a number of inner city seats. They've already, at the Legislative Assembly level in Victoria, they've lost the seat of Melbourne, they've lost the seat of Paran, and both these seats were lost on a public house because of public housing tenants moving from Labor to Greens. And if they lose Northcote, there's a potential they could lose Brunswick. There's the potential they could lose uh, Preston. There's the potential they could lose Williamstown. And most importantly of all, there's the potential they could actually lose Mr Foley, the housing minister's... Uh, housing minister, Victorian housing minister's uh, electorate of Albert Park. So, if you're interested in helping me on Saturday, the 18th of November, 8am to 6pm or part of that time, handing out how to vote material, which puts this issue of housing affordability at the forefront of the issues which will be voted on at the Northcote by-election, I need your assistance, Okay, We've got a lot of the booths covered. We need a little bit more help to cover all the booths, and obviously I'd like to have two or three people at each, each booth. So... If you say to me, Joe, you're pissing in the wind, think about it this way. If you piss in the wind, it's your urine that soaks your legs and runs into your socks, okay? But if you don't try to, if you don't attempt to piss in the wind, other people are going to piss on you, and that's what we're seeing today across this country and across the, the planet. We are seeing the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, you know... Uh, stalwarts, they're these ideological warriors from the left and the right who are now pissing on you big time, pissing on you to such an extent that 33% of Australians rely on social security benefits to survive and that's less than $400 a week. When rent for a one-bedroom hovel is between 250 to $300. So you do the maths if you haven't got family or friends to help you out. Now on Wednesday... Sorry, on Thursday the 16th of November, Thursday the 16th of November, some public housing advocates will be meeting at midday outside the office of the Labor candidate, 
Clareburn at 623 High Street Informbury. That's 623 High Street Informbury. To voice their concerns regarding the Labor Party's inability to put public housing at the forefront of their uh, housing strategy. So, it's up to you. You can either complain or you can join people who are doing something, right? Now, we may not succeed. We may not get the 2 or 3 or 4%. We may not, may not be the kingmakers. But we have had an impact on people in this electorate because we are putting public housing through this campaign for and centre of all the things that we are pushing currently. And housing is a right. It's not some a right for an investor. It's a right. When you've got 16% of apartments in the Melbourne CBD empty because people are relying on uh, you know just prices going up, you realise you've got a problem. When you've got people sleeping rough on the streets and despite all these so-called uh, you know, organisations that are involved in home, the care of the homeless, you can't seem to make a dent in what's happening, you know you've got a problem. When people are paying 40 to 50 to 60 to 70% of their income, especially if they're on Social Security benefits, to secure over a roof over their heads, you know you've got a problem. When you've got tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in public waiting lists which will never get a home, you know you've got a problem. And if you've got a problem, you need to solve it. And you don't solve it by doing the same shit over and over again. You do the same shit, you get the same result. Ask Albert Einstein. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscombe, hosting today's program. Now, thank you. I'd like to thank all those people who came to the Francesco Fantine Memorial at Murchison on uh, Sunday the 12th of November. It was good to see um, relatives of Francesco there for the first time. It was good to see all the people who came from around Australia to the ceremony to mark the 75th anniversary of his murder, which occurred on the 16th of November, 1942. And Francesco Fantine was an, an anarchist exile who'd escaped from Mussolini's Italy to Australia, who gave him refuge. Unlike Australia in 2017, Australia in the mid-1920s was giving refuge to refugees, you know, who were running away from the rise of Nazism and fascism in Europe. He was arrested in, 1840, in 1942, although he had been involved in anti-fascist activity for over two decades in this, in this country, where he had tried to warn the Australian people what was happening in Italy, what was happening in Germany, what was happening in Spain and what would happen in this country. And for his trouble, he was interned in the internment camp at South Australia amongst hundreds of rigidage, bona fide Italian fascists. And because he refused to kowtow, because he refused to give the, uh, the salute to Mussolini while he was uh, trying to get a drink from a tap in the yard of the internment camp on the afternoon of the 16th of November, 1942, he was bludgeoned to death with a 4B2 and then for good measure his body was kicked over and over again by these heroes. So it was good. Francesco Fantine's body lies in an ossuary 
of 220 Italians, some prisoners of war, some internees who died in internment camps and prisoner of war camps across Australia at the end of World War II in the 50s. Their bodies were disinterred and taken to the Austria at Murchison and every year for the last four years we've been going there to show our respects and it was good to see family and friends um, join us this year and uh, put it in your diary for next year. The first Sunday after Armistice Day, Murchison Cemetery, make it make a week of it, join us, pay the respects to people who paid the ultimate price, not for God, not for Queen, not for country, but who paid the ultimate price for human rights, who paid the ultimate price to ensure that other people enjoy the same rights as they did. Listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Oh, it's been a busy week, you know. It's been a busy week for yours truly. And the thing is, you keep busy because they tell me when you die, that's the end of it. Yep. Unless you can tell me otherwise, and then I'll join your religious um, dogma. I'll start reciting it every morning. I'll get up and get on my knees and recite it. But uh, at the minute, you know, death is the end of life, so you need to keep busy. Now, on Saturday, the 11th of November, I was in Ballarat at, I think it was St. Peter's Anglican Church at Bakery Hill. And they had a little service where I was uh, invited to speak uh, regarding the 163rd anniversary of the Ballarat Reform League Charter. There are four important things which occurred on the 11th of November in Australia, and we remember three, but don't remember the most important. On the 11th of November 1854, a mass meeting of over 15,000 miners adopted the Ballarat Ballarat Reform League Charter, which was based on the Charter, which had been doing the rounds in Britain for a number of decades. And it's very simple. The Charter had a number of points, you know... uh, Uh, universal male suffrage, um, uh, equal electorates, secret ballot, the list goes on and on, and obviously there's the abolition of the miners and and storekeeper's licence. Now, this charter evolved from the uh, British charter, which had many, many of the same points. The interesting thing is, which I raised it when I spoke at this public meeting, isn't it time for a new people's charter? Isn't it time for a new people's charter? Because if we're born with inalienable rights and liberties, why aren't these inalienable rights and liberties enshrined in the Australian Constitution? I mean, this citizenship debacle, you know, highlights how ludicrous the Australian Constitution is. Why shouldn't we have a debate about a new a new constitution? Why do we leave it to seven old people, you know, sit in the High Court to uh, work out what the words mean? It's a little bit like the, you know, a religious mullah or a priest or a rabbi or whatever, you know, looking at a, a scripture and saying, ooh, I think God meant this or I think God meant that. So we've got seven high court judges who say, hmm, we think the founding father said this and we think they said that. So isn't it time for a new constitution? 1999, remember the old Republican referendum? With Mr. Howard called. I actually stood, stood in that referendum on an important position. A new constitution for a new millennium, right? A new constitution for a new thousand years. And guess what? 
out of about 14 million votes, all I could scrape up was about 5 million. Sorry, not 5 million, 5,000. My apologies, got carried away there. So there wasn't much interest. But again, 20 years later, we st- or 19 years later, we still face the same issues. And while we, do, while we have to deal with a constitution which doesn't enshrine human rights, a constitution which is essentially a, a trade document re- which regulates the relationship between the central government and the federation of state governments, you know, we'll continue to have all, all this garbage. So it's up to you once again. Think about it. You can do one of two things. You can be, you know, you can say... I wish somebody would do something about that or you can say I'm going to do something about that I'm going to do it when I'm old and retired I'm going to do it when the kids are off my hands I'm going to do it when I finish my degree I'm going to do it you know when I grow a beard I'm going to do it when I have had my holiday I'm going to do it after I finish work and the list goes on and on going to try every excuse in the universe now look we can all be gunners and if we're all gunners nothing ever happens and the great thing about being an activist is the fact that you are at the cutting edge of social, political, community, cultural change. That's what activism is about. It's it's about leading people. Not pushing them, but leading by example. Pointing the way. So what would I see in a new 21st century people's charter? Or a people's charter, or a 21st century people's charter? What would I like to see included in that charter? And this is something which I'll elucidate on in the next few months and possibly will launch a new people's charter sometime next early next year. But what would I like to see? Well, the first thing I'd like to see in a new people's charter is a living wage for all. The cyber wage is upon us. We've already seen the effects of it. We've casualised part-time work and the fact that a lot of jobs are going overseas and even more importantly, that a lot of jobs have been recognised by the computer cyber age. The things that human beings had to do, we can get a you know, boring things, a machine to do. And obviously, we're not going to need everybody in the population to actually be involved in the work process in order to survive and prosper as a community. So the cyber age throws a a new challenge at us, a challenge which is based on the idea that not everybody needs to be involved in the workforce for society to function and prosper. A little bit like the Roman Empire, the same problem the Roman Empire had as they... They extended their uh, control over Europe and invaded more and more uh, people. They found that their plebeians, the workers, the Roman workers, didn't need to work. So they had to entertain them in some way through breads and circuses. So how do you share wealth? Well, a living wage for everybody. Same living wage for everybody. Not only gives people more personal freedom, it no longer kind of ties people economically in a, in a couple situation they they're not, or a domestic situation they're not be happy with, or forces children to stay in family situations they're not happy with. Having that economic uh, independence means that you can do things. So a living wage for all should be the number one, number one item of the new People's Charter. What's another item we could think of? Well, well, possibly the power of recall. If you want to continue for a representative democratic system, how about the power of recall? Giving the electors the power to recall non-performing performing politicians in between elections because the problem we have today 
It's very simple. When people go out and vote, they don't vote for independents, they vote for political parties. If you're a candidate that's been pre-selected for a political party and you win that seat, your primary allegiance is not to the people who elected you, but to the political party which pre-selected you. That's why we're having so much, so many issues in federal parliament over decades. Because political representative and a representative democracy are not beholden to the people. All the poor suffering elector can do is wait till the next election and cast another ballot and get, to give another to give another blank check to somebody else. So maybe another item in a new people's charter could be the power of recall. Why don't we get a little bit radical? and put the idea of, in a new people's charter, of citizens-initiated referendums, allowing the people through referendums to initiate constitutional change without having to go through, the, through Parliament. Hmm? Bypass the federal Parliament and put the question, as we just did, with the voluntary postal survey, which actually had no impact on uh, the uh, politicians' uh, behaviour, no legal impact on the politicians' behaviour. It'll have a moral and ethical impact on their behaviour, but not a legal impact. So maybe, maybe having citizens-initiated referendums and bypassing the power of Parliament to initiate change and allow the people to put in, change the Constitution on a regular basis would actually be something which suits 21st century democracy. And how about the concept of direct democracy in a new people's charter? The idea that you don't rely on representation in parliament, but the idea that the people make decisions and then appoint or elect delegates to coordinate those decisions at a local, regional and national level. bit radical, 21st century. We've got insoluble problems, increasing population growth, limited resources, increasing greenhouse emissions, doesn't matter what the idiots think, and my apology to idiots, the fact is CO2 is increasing. So maybe having a collective way of tackling problems, not leaving it to a few hundred people in Parliament to tackle those problems on our behalf, maybe collectively working together through a direct democratic system, maybe then and only then we'll be in a position to actually be able to make decisions on how best to tackle the climate emergency we do face, because we do face a climate emergency. That's another issue for people to take up, to think about. Real issues, take up and think about. Why not incorporate maybe a human rights charter in the Australian Constitution? I mean, if 61.6% of the Australian population voted for marriage equality in a non-binding voluntary postal survey, maybe if the question of having human rights in, incorporated in the Australian Constitution were discussed, put to people in a referendum, maybe those human rights would be incorporated in the Australian Constitution. We're told constantly that Australians are conservative in terms of their ideas. I think the voluntary postal survey on marriage equality has kind of put a hush to that. I mean, Australians are conservative when it comes to referendum questions because in the majority of cases, if you go through the 100 referendums that have been held since Federation in 1901, you'll find that 95% of them are 
deal with giving more power to Canberra, more power to the central government. And obviously people don't like that and vote against it. When it came to the question of giving the Commonwealth power to legislate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in 1967, that was a 90-plus percent vote. So when it comes to real questions, I don't think Australians tend to be conservative. They tend to be a little bit more radical than you think. And we are a little bit more radical than most people think. Because unfortunately, despite the World Wide Web, despite this uh, so-called free exchange of information, the kind of picture that's built up in our minds of our fellow citizens, and, you know, I meet a lot of people. I meet a lot of people in my work. I see a lot of people in many different parts of the country. And to me, there's more than a radical kind of uh, fibre there's a much more robust discussion of ideas, especially ideas which directly impact on people like housing and maybe incorporating a new people's charter, the concept of a 1% turnover tax and a 1% stock market turnover tax and the money raised for that to actually be used to provide new government-owned, government-managed essential infrastructure, roads, electricity generating units, you know, based on, you know, um, decreasing carbon emissions, the list goes on and on, and a, an alternative source. So there are a lot of things you put in a new people's charter. You don't actually have to be constrained by what you think is going to work because, see, in the 1830s and the 1820s when the Chartists were in uh, part of the radical popular movement in, uh, in England, in Scotland and Wales... I mean, people didn't put down things that they thought they were going to get. They put down things that they believed they should have. And that's the key, because a lot of people these days kind of modify their behaviour, they modify their demands because they think that the Australian population isn't ready for them. It's not that the Australian population isn't ready for it. The key issue is the media is not ready for it. The government-owned media is not ready for it. You know, the privately owned corporate media is not ready for it. They don't want to see power diluted from a parliamentary system which they control because they hold the purse springs. They don't want to see that power diluted. I mean, it's beautiful when you're a large corporation, you've got lobby groups, you give money to people, you know, and you've got a few politicians to hobnob with and put a bit of pressure on to uh, ensure that any legislation which impinges on your profits negatively never appears in Parliament. It's not as if the corporate sector tells the government what to do. It's the government knows that if it puts up legislation which doesn't look after their interests and looks after the interests of the people, they may have a problem. And this is an issue we see ad nauseum. For example, self-censorship is the single biggest problem we have. Look at this academic who wanted to kind of publish, have published a book he wrote on the Chinese influence in Australia and the Chinese Communist Party's influence in Australia is quite quite, uh, large, extensive. And he couldn't get a major publisher to publish it because they were concerned about being sued by the Chinese government. And this is the issue. We self-censor every day. We self-censor. We don't wait for people to tell us, oh, no, you can't do that. We just say, well, if you want to get ahead in the world, we'll self-centre. 
we won't talk about that. So, if you don't want to self-censor, how about joining public interest before corporate interest? This is another little project I've been involved in for the last two or three years. Public interest before corporate interest. Very simple idea that the interests of the many are always put before the interests of the few. Considered to be radical. Radical concepts in 2017. Could you imagine that? Considered to be radical concepts in 2017. The idea of putting the interests of the many before the interests of the few. Isn't that why we had the revolutionary periods during the 19th century? Isn't that why tens of thousands of people have died in that struggle to ensure that we have the same rights and liberties as everybody else? Well, maybe I've been reading the wrong history books. Maybe it isn't. Just extraordinary. So, if you want change, why don't you join public interest before corporate interests? Simple. You can write to us for an application form. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email us for a public ca- for an application form, info at pipsy.net, info at pibci.net. You can always ring me on 0439 395 489. As I said before, if you wish to assist me in the Norfolk by-election campaign, give us a ring. The main assistance I need currently is a little bit of assistance on Thursday and Friday. We've had a vote... Uh, material outside the pre-election booth at 116 Station Street in Fairfield and I'll be there between 8.30 and 9.30 and between 6pm and 8pm on Thursday and 8.30 and 9.30 on Friday but most importantly of all we need more people for the polling booths. There are 14 polling booths we'd like to have two or three people at this, all the polling booths so we need more people at the polling booths so if you can help 0439 395 489 if you think you're pissing in the wind I don't think you are. Getting ideas across is a good way to keep your mind active because in this day and age, it's all about consumption, isn't it? And last but not least, I'd like to remind you about the Eureka, Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations, which will be held in Ballarat on Sunday. Did you hear that? Sunday the 3rd of December. Sunday the 3rd of December. It's a Sunday. Unless you're a poorly paid casual staffer, you got a good chance of getting there on a Sunday. 4am to 10pm, and I'll go through the program. A very simple program. You don't have to ring anybody. Just turn up, take part, reclaim the radical spirit. People sp- spilt blood 163 years ago, so you can enjoy those rights and liberties which have been you know, removed on a daily basis. You can enjoy what you've got. 4am to 6am, Eureka Park, corner of Stall and Eureka Street in Ballarat at the very site the battle took place at the very time and the very day because it took place on a Sunday in 1854 at around 3, 4am. So join us at 4am. Communal breakfast between 6pm and 9pm. 9pm we'll be marching uh, or walking down the street to Bakery Hill where we will give out six or seven Eureka Australia Day medals. That's right, six or seven Eureka Australia Day medals. Then we'll walk to the uh, town hall for uh, stump orations, to the cemetery, the old Ballarat Cemetery, to pay our respects to those men who are buried in the mass grave at the old Ballarat Cemetery. From there, we'll walk to Trades Hall. We should get there about 1pm for a light lunch and drinks. You can uh, purchase drinks at bar prices at Trades Hall. Last year, they were so kind to us, they gave us free beer. 
What else? 24 Camp Street in Ballarat. Join us there. 24 Camp Street in Ballarat. And then from there, we will be walking to the uh, uh, Museum of Australian Democracy at Eureka to uh, look at the Eureka flag. I'll talk about the Eureka flag, what it means, its history. And then after that, late afternoon tea, and at 7pm that night, you won't believe it, 7pm that night, we have the annual Eureka Dinner which is hosted by the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion Celebrations Group at the Queen's Head Hotel in Humphrey Street in Ballarat, 7pm to 10pm, 7pm to 10pm. Uh, you just pay for food and drinks, entertainment from the West Papuan community, and also uh, there'll be entertainment from the Bard who'll be singing his seminal song, The Pikeman's Dog, which goes on for about nine minutes. He'll also be singing that song at the dawn ceremony at 4am to 6am on Sunday the 3rd of December so join us and just in case it's all over don't forget the 9th of December, Saturday the 9th of December is the West Papuan Rent Collective Lunch and some Pari Art Exhibition, I'll speak more about that next week Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. If you can get to a polling booth on the Northcote by-election on Saturday the 18th of November, give us a call 0439 0439-395-489. 0439-395-489. Send a message. If you've got money for a call, we'll get back to you. We'll tell you where to go. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. If you want to find out all the things I've been doing, go to my Facebook page. Yes, I have a Facebook page. I have thousands of friends, and I'm going to borrow money off them sooner or later, but not yet. I need 100,000 friends first. Go to Toscano for the public. Toscano, T-O-S-C-A-N-O, for the public. You can go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. Go to the PIPSI website, pipsi.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. Lots of things happening, and if you're in Melbourne, there's the Marriage Equality Party at the Victorian Trades Hall starting at 5.30pm on Wednesday, the 15th of November. So lots of things happening. Join us. Tear up your membership to the Gunner Tribe. Tear up your membership to the Somebody Should Do Something About That Tribe and join the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest Tribe. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. That results once again of the Voluntary Postal Survey. 12,727,920 people responded. Yes, 7,817,247, 6166 no, 4,873,987, Thank you once again. Listen to The Anarchist World this week, next week on your local community radio station. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.